This podcast is brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution. For expert disclosures on conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Dear friends and colleagues, a warm welcome to today's podcast on the topic of VGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors in the treatment of hepatocellular carcinoma alone and in combination with PD-1 inhibitors. We will talk about dosing strategies, prehabilitation of patients, and we'll have a full spectrum covering efficacy and toxicity in clinical practice. I'm joined today by Dr. Amit Singhal from the US, a hepatologist and friend, and my name is Peter Galle, a hepatologist from Germany. Thanks for having me, Peter. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. The use of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, tackling VGF receptor signaling, is of course not coming by chance. Here we have the hallmark of hepatocellular carcinoma, hypervascularity. And naturally, this is coming also into consideration when talking about therapy. Anything inhibiting this hypervascular feature of HCC might be of value. Initially, we were hoping just to starve a tumor to stop the perfusion. Then we learned that anti-angiogenic agents are actually more potent. They normalize, in fact, the vasculature of a tumor. And later, in addition to it, we were realizing that there is a rather complex impact on the tumor microenvironment and tyrosine kinase inhibitor have the function of an immune modulator, which is also of very high relevance in terms of combinational partners, for example, checkpoint inhibitors. Amit, what do you think is the relevant mode of action? What is the contribution of TKIs alone and in combination? Yeah, no, Peter, it's a, it's a great question. And as you alluded to, our understanding of this has evolved over time. I think that in the beginning, we thought that VEGF inhibition was largely just anti-angiogenic, thereby, as you said, you know, starving the tumor of its blood supply. But I think as immune checkpoint inhibitors have come into the field of HCC, much like they've revolutionized the treatment for many cancers, we've started to really think through immunomodulatory effects. So we've started to realize that VEGF inhibition can normalize tumor vasculature, increase T-cell infiltration. It can decrease um, immunosuppressive cells, Tregs and myeloid-derived um, suppressor cells, and it can promote dendritic cell maturation. So it has a lot of immunomodulatory effects. And this comes into key, you know play, particularly as you referenced, when we start to combine you know, VEGF inhibitors um, such as bevacizumab with immune checkpoint inhibitors, as well as ongoing trials combining TKIs with um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. When we take a look at this, I, I would argue that both mechanisms are probably important, although arguably as we come into combination therapies, maybe the immunomodulatory effects may be greater than um, or, or greater interest than the anti-angiogenic effects um, directly. So we can assume we have different impact on the tumor and its microenvironment. And in simple words, it might be tumoricidal, a tumoricidal effect on tumor cells, and then the more complex impact on the tumor microenvironment 
described as immune modulation. I would like to challenge you here, Amit, in terms of dosing, because this is a topic which we are referring to later on. And um, I'm a bit uncertain about the knowledge we have concerning the dosing strategy. And it might actually be quite different in terms of which dose is required when you talk about a tumoricidal and an immune modulatory impact. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Peter. So, um, you know, when these tyrosine kinase inhibitors have been used alone, you had to have doses that actually were achieving tumoricidal effects. So, you know, really um, having a dose where you would have sufficient activity with monotherapy. When you're using it with combination therapy, it's potential, I guess we don't know for sure, that if you're relying on the immunomodulatory effects to be an add-on, you may get away with lower doses. Um, and so you may not need the same doses that you need when used as monotherapy. And this would be beneficial because you could avoid some of the adverse events that you can see with tyrosine kinase inhibition and VEGF inhibition um, at the higher doses. So um, it's a very interesting question, something that I think needs to be evaluated um, if we can use different combinations in combination than um, with monotherapy. I think one of the many questions we still have to answer in HCC. What are your thoughts? The different dosing strategy become apparent when you check the protocol of the COSMIC 312 trial. Um, here, cabosantinib, a TKI, is used in combination with atezolizumab. And if this combination is used, the dosing for cabosantinib is reduced to 40 milligrams compared to the monoarm cabosantinib, which is also uh, used here, where 60 milligrams are uh, recommended. So uh, the assumption apparently is there that for immune modulation, you need less. And I think there are some data exactly pointing out to this particular impact. If you want to kill a tumor cell, you might need more. If you want to immune modulate the tumor micro environment, particularly in the setting of a combination, then you might need less. That needs to be further elaborated in the future. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, the dosing of TKIs in general is something that requires a lot of art um, and, you know, isn't as simple as one may think just based on label. Absolutely. Even in monotherapy, I think that, you know, we, we see the label with these recommended doses. But I think that, you know, many of us, as we've used tyrosine kinase inhibitors in practice, we often will change that dosing strategy for an individual patient in front of us. And this is often done to try to avoid some of the adverse events that one knows can happen with tyrosine kinase inhibitors. I think all of us that have used these are well aware of adverse events, including hand-foot skin reaction, hypertension, the anorexia. So I, I think these are all things that can be um, distressing to patients and sometimes cause dose discontinuation, um, if not complete cessation. Um, and so I think many of us have started to start with lower doses. Um, this is our standard practice in our clinical practices to start at lower doses, assess tolerability closely, um, and then ramp up from there um, with continual um, dose escalation to try to get them to their highest tolerable dose. Um, and, you know, this has actually been a tested strategy. I mean, as you're aware, you know, for example, in colon cancer, the redose trial actually looked at this, like a, a 
dosing strategy where you start lower and dose escalate and compared it to a strategy where you start at the highest dose and patients did stay on therapy longer. So, you know, the primary outcome of that colon cancer trial was patients getting to the third dose of therapy and a higher proportion um, achieved, you know, getting to that third dose in the dose escalation arm. Um, and I think many of us have applied similar techniques to our patients with HCC. At least that's that's the practice in our setting. What do you, what do, you do um, Peter, with, with your patients? Yeah, we actually have changed our attitude towards dosing. Initially, <clears throat> we felt that the recommended strategy, the recommended dosing should be adhered to. And naturally, this is where most of the data come from. And then we learned that individualization of therapy is the way to keep patients on track and to, in the end, get a better outcome because you are able, by downtitrating the tolerated dose, to a level where it can be indeed tolerated by the patient. And maintenance on track is a very relevant aspect and achievement, particularly though, because the correlation with adverse events and outcome is there. We know that actually those patients suffering, if in a way, a bit from, from side effects from TKI therapy, actually are those where you could predict that the response rate is higher and the overall survival is longer. So it's very, very relevant for these patients not to be stopped because of side effects, but to be maintained on track. And in fact, that's precisely what we are doing today. And this is actually true for the large um, variety of different TKIs. Um, initially, we tried to um, have a high drug exposure early on, and then we learned this is not our goal. Our goal is to have a patient as long as possible on drug, and that may actually mean a dramatic reduction in the recommended dose. And in addition, if I may add, Amit, there have been examples where this was actually in a way proven to be relevant. Take the Linifanib trial. This trial did not allow dose adjustments and lenifanib had to be dosed correctly as recommended or stopped completely. What happened um, in comparison to sorafenib treatment with lenifanib was shorter. So you could not maintain a patient on a recommended dose. And if you are not allowed to down titrate, then you just have to stop. And that was a negative trial. So I think we have examples that um, the lower dose or the individualized adjustment is of high relevance. And the interesting question is, of course, if it's um, better, as you were pointed out, to go up in, in, in the dose, start low and, and uh, titrate to what is tolerable, or if you start with the recommended dose and um, pay attention to side effects. Your thoughts on that, Amit? Yeah, you know, um, Peter, the reason why we start low and go up is simply to make sure that patients don't have a, a severe AE up front, you know, and then um, even if you as a provider are able to titrate down and keep them on therapy, the patient themselves becomes frustrated and, you know, doesn't want to go back on therapy or doesn't want to continue even at a lower dose. Um, and so we have found just over time that patients are more accepting if they tolerate and you continue to escalate up. 
And so, uh, you know, once again, our current practice is to start low and titrate up. But you bring up a very important point that if you're going to start low, it's critical that you dose escalate up. You should not just start low and continue low out of fear for adverse events, because as you raised, these um, adverse events um, have been associated with longer survival. I mean, as you know, this story started with serafinib and regorafenib, where the, the presence of hand-foot skin reaction was associated with better outcomes. Um, and, you know, now this has been shown with some of the other TKIs. Um, I, I believe ramiserumab, if you have like treatment emergent hypertension, that's associated with better sort of outcomes. And so I think these AEs, while can be, you know, quote unquote, concerning when they happen or, you know, t- require some effort to, to manage, we should not underdose out of fear of them. I think we need to, I mean, if you're going to start low, continue to escalate up to that tolerable dose. And then, as you said, if you hit that AE, talk to your patient, talk to them that this may be actually a good thing, although sort of odd to hear from a patient perspective, because of these associated um, improved outcomes, and then to stay at that higher dose and manage that dose well. Um, but to, to get to your exact question, I mean, I, 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 you know, our, our standard practice is to start low and then, as I said, escalate up to that higher tolerable dose. But it's probably relevant, first of all, for our patients and then for those in our audience today, the individualization, the willingness to adjust to what is tolerated, but to try to maintain a patient on track is probably the most relevant recommendation here. If you are not flexible enough, you might lose your patient. The patient will, will no longer accept the, the side effect profile. And as we, are, we have learned over the years, it can be sometimes quite diffuse, just fatigue. And, and the patient can't actually really explain what's going on. But um, there is an issue about tolerability. So please, dear friends and colleagues, pay attention to the individual patient and um, those adjust accordingly. It will result in longer treatment duration and in better outcome. Completely agree. So, so Peter, I think it's it's been an exciting time in the field of HCC as we've had more and more therapies come out. So we now have multiple therapies available in the first line, and we have multiple therapies available in the second line. And I think one of the things that becomes difficult with treatment options is how do we choose between them? And so, you know, one of the ways that this could be done um, is by biomarkers. I think this is the holy grail of precision oncology is to have a biomarker that tells us this is the best therapy for this individual patient. Um, and as you know, there's been a lot of work in this field, um, although unfortunately, um, some of it being quite negative to date. Um, so can you tell us how do you use biomarkers in your clinical practice, um, if at all, and, and where does this stand in the field of HCC? This is a great point, Amit, and uh, you can look at it differently. Um, it has a lot of perspective and it has been sort of disappointing in the past. If you think about it, um, it's now more than two decades since we started to develop signature which initially were described to have clear prognostic potential. And of course, we were hoping that they would be able to stratify our patients according to a response to a given therapy. We as clinicians probably were not 
good enough in using these strategies, integrating them into clinical trials and um, show their predictive potential because the signatures are still there, but it has never in any way matured into prediction in terms of um, choices of therapy. That is disappointing. The only biomarker, and it's the oldest one we have, which we are currently using is alpha-fetoprotein as it has been demonstrated by initially the subgroup analysis of the REACH trial and then by the REACH2 trial that in patients with an alpha-fetoprotein above 400, ramucirumab, an anti-angiogenic antibody, is effective. So that is an option we have. But the, let's say, fine-tuning the different signatures we have, and particularly now in times of immunotherapy, where we would like to separate those hot and inflamed tumors from those who are not hot. And we ask the question, how can we make this tumor hot? This is not existent at present. And in that sense, we need to get better because in simple words, not all patients respond and we would like to know better who is respond to what. Yeah, no, it's um, it's been interesting. I mean, AFP, as you referenced, um, has been around the longest, and it continues to be the only biomarker that um, has withstood the test of time um, in HCC. Um, and others have come and gone, but haven't really borne out in terms of having a, a prognostic um, or treatment response role um, in, in HCC. I think the other one that's, of course, of interest um, as we move into immunotherapy is PDL one um, and unfortunately, the studies that have been done to date haven't shown PDL one status um, to be predictive in HCC. So although it's been of value in other tumor types, unfortunately, at least right now, um, isn't being used to select patients for, for one therapy or another. And short of having this biomarker, we're, we're forced to depend on other clinical characteristics that can help determine between patients and our experience with, with these different therapies. One of the studies that has caused a lot of um, hoopla, for, for lack of a better word, um, is this study that was recently raised in terms of differential effect of immune checkpoint inhibitors in um, viral etiologies versus non-viral etiologies. So this is um, the study, as you know, that was recently published showing potential decreased efficacy of immune checkpoint inhibitors um, in subgroup analyses when um, looking at the large phase three studies. So taking a look at, you know, Checkmate 459, taking a look at the keynote study, the I Am Brave um, 150 study, essentially showing that the immune checkpoint inhibitors um, appeared to have um, decreased benefit in those patients with non-viral etiologies. Um, and this caused a, a lot of concern. And so I can tell you that my view on this is the, the preclinical rationale there was elegantly done, and I think it does bear further study. Um, but right now, you know, given the fact that these studies weren't stratified on etiology um, and there could be intergroup differences, um, you know, I think at least the clinical data that was included in that publication may be too um, premature to change clinical practice. But I guess I'd like to hear, Peter, what, what do you think of these data and what do you think about the maturity of these? Do you think that this bears for their observation? Are you concerned? And have you changed your clinical practice at all? That's a great, great question and the relevance is absolutely there and it's a hot discussion. It goes actually back to the old SHARP days. In the SHARP trial, 
we saw a signal from subgroup analysis that hepatitis B and hepatitis C um, etiology um, resulted in different outcomes in terms of response to serafinib. Um, this is food for thoughts. This is hypothesis generating, but not more. That's the point. You need to then set up a clinical trial where you really stratify for these, for example, ideologies, and then do a prospective trial. And this has never happened. And the same is actually true for non-viral ideology. And the signal, as you were referencing to the Heikenwelder group and the Nature paper, where it was nicely shown, and I would echo what you just said in preclinical analysis, that there is probably not as good a response to checkpoint inhibitors uh, as to non-nafil, non-fatty liver disease etiologies, but the clinical aspects are just too weak. And if you, for example, take the IMPREY 150 trial, yes, in the non-viral etiology, there is a crossing of the one in terms of um, uh, poor hazard ratio in favor of atezolizumab, bevacizumab. But if you compare the data for these patients in non-viral etiology with the uh, general assessment, then you realize it's actually not a poor performance of um, atezolizumab, bevacizumab. It's rather a super performance of serafinib. So that needs to be further elaborated on. And at present, we certainly don't change our clinical practice. And in addition to what I just said, um, the definition of these etiologies is sort of not very precise. I mean, non-viral etiology is not exactly the same as NASH. And in many parts of the world, it's actually more ash than NASH. And then we have a dilution and uh, the signals become even less clear. So in the future, certainly worthwhile stratifying according to ideology and find out better who is responding and not. But currently, no change in clinical practice. Peter, great points. And I think this is of immense interest, um, particularly as we've seen a shift in epidemiology of cirrhosis and our HEC patients. I mean, with hepatitis C therapies now becoming prevalent, I mean, we're seeing less hepatitis C-related, um, you know, HCC and cirrhosis, and we're seeing more and more non-viral etiologies. So this is an important question. I think one of the important questions that needs to be answered um, in the field of HCC and I think your point of this informing clinical trial design and the necessity to stratify um, based on etiology and clinical trials is critically important. But I think short of that, um, I completely agree that um, these data are too early for us to change clinical practice. And I think given the immense improvements in survival that we've seen with um, atizolizumab and bevacizumab, this combination of immune checkpoint inhibitors and, and VEGF inhibition compared to tyrosine kinase inhibitors, I think it would be a shame to withhold that therapy based on the current strength of data in the, in the clinical field. Um, so I, I think interesting, but I think, you know, once again, um, early in terms of clinical practice. Peter, so I, I guess we're left in a world where we have some interesting data from a clinical perspective in terms of uh, identifying which patients should be treated which therapy. We unfortunately are short on biomarkers um, outside of AFP, as you referenced, in terms of ramucirumab. And so, you know, it really brings us to, to one of the, the last things that I think would be interesting to talk about um, is how do we make our patients optimal 
for any therapy that you may choose. You talked about the idea of um, precision oncology and individualizing treatment regimens for our individual patient in front of us. And so can you talk about some of the steps that you will take to make it so that patient comes in as fit as possible um, or as optimal as possible to select a certain therapy and stay on a certain therapy? Once again, with the idea that you raised of keeping patients on therapy for as long as possible to derive the greatest benefit. Yeah, thank you. I'm mean, really glad to have you as sparring partner today because you are a hepatologist. And uh, this question naturally comes from a hepatologist because we are aware that our patients are frail, they don't tolerate much toxicity, and they need to be readjusted or pre habilitation programs to be fit for therapy. Patients can be occasionally and intermittently absolutely unfit for therapy, particularly if there is a complication of the underlying cirrhosis, if there is a bleed, if there is spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and cephalopathy. These patients are no longer tolerating any, any sort of therapy and we have to push the reset button in a way and, and, and make them fit again, pay attention to their needs. So that is, a, I mean, it's in general an important issue. Have your patients with respect to nutrition, um, muscle status and so on as fit as possible because it's very well described that the fitter the patient, the better tolerated the therapy, the better the outcome. And in, in hepatological patients, it's even more pronounced because liver is um, the master of toxicity. And if liver is not working, the toxicity is very prevalent. So yeah, we have to pay attention and um, we might to um, do an interruption to stop treatment for a little while in order to get our patient into a shape to be fit for, th for therapy. And this is extremely relevant. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Peter. And um, I think it's great to hear that we both have the same perspective on this. Not surprising, but great to hear. I think that it's often difficult but important to talk to a patient that comes in who is, quote unquote, unfit for therapy and to discuss, you know, the need to be patient up front. Rushing into therapy can actually be disastrous. And so taking the time, as you referenced, to control the ascites up front, to control the encephalopathy up front. So to make it so the liver function is as optimal as possible. Now, there are some components of liver disease that are reversible or at least addressable, and there are other components that are not. Um, I think one of the most common sort of questions I get is, what can I take to bring my bilirubin down? And I'm like, unfortunately, we don't have a medication that you know automatically reverses hyperbilirubinemia. Uh, but I think that whatever you can address, I think needs to be addressed. So um, addressing the ascites, addressing the encephalopathy, and outside of liver function, I think the other thing going into, you know, VEGF inhibition or TKI-based therapy is to control some of the other comorbidities. So once again, we know that, you know, TKI therapy can cause um, hypertension. So to control the blood pressure coming into therapy, to, to control the diabetes coming into to the therapy, so you reduce the risk of, you know, diabetic nephropathy, these other sort of comorbidities that we often see in our patients with liver disease, particularly as we move into a field which is more and more driven by non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, so I think both of us have a very similar approach um, to making it so we discuss this up front um, and, and making sure that patients are fit coming into therapy. 
Um, I think, you know, one of the most common things that I talk to my patients about is having a battle plan, you know, a, a map of that battlefield before going into war. And so that's that's the way that I think about this is a little bit of time of prep up front really helps us have the best outcomes um, long term. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The, the um, willingness to um, uh, check every time you see your patient performance status and liver function and to adjust the uh, treatment accordingly is not only relevant upfront, but also during therapy. There's one last point which I would like to consider, and that is those patients where the tumor itself is contributing to poor liver function. So if you have a tumor sitting in the hilum interfering with a perfusion, here it can be actually quite um, beneficial for the patient if you have an objective response. And we know that, for example, lenvatinib um, is creating more objective responses than other tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And that actually might improve liver function. And you see that occasionally, not extremely often, but you see that occasionally that unlike in most patients where over time of treatment, liver function tends to get worse, in that particular setting, liver function improves as a result of anti-tumor treatment, and that also needs to be considered. Pay attention. That's the simple message at the end uh, of our podcast. Pay attention to the individual needs, to liver function and performance status upfront and during therapy. Amit, at the end of our discussion, I enjoyed it uh, tremendously. Thank you very much. This was really covering the full spectrum. Hope to um, have a, another podcast with you soon. Thank you so much. And to our audience, I hope you enjoyed this uh, presentation and goodbye. Yeah, Peter, it's always a joy. Um, thanks so much. And thanks again for the audience for joining. This HCC Connect podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ed.com for more information.